Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a surprisingly damp spring morning in the mountains of Utah. A quick reminder that as of release of this episode, we are just five weeks away from the launch of my new epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning. Pre-orders are a huge part of the ultimate success of a book, so if you're planning to pick it up and can do so early, I'd be very grateful if you did. Also, this episode does get a tiny bit sweary, so if you're my mother or have little kids around, maybe skip this one or come back to it later. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is science fiction author John Scalzi. John is known for a massive variety of work, including his early career as a reviewer and columnist, his best-selling breakout novel Old Man's War, his time as president of the Science Fiction Writers of America, and his well-known blog Whatever. John and I talk about paradigm shifts in our industry, being a longtime public figure, and his well-publicized 13-book contract with Tor. We also talk about living and working in the Midwest, and the real nature of professional jealousy. Enjoy my conversation with John Scalzi. As somebody who is a native to uh, Ohio, um, myself, Mm -hmm. in my experience, people normally start in Ohio and then go to California. Yeah. You started in California and ended up in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, how did that happen? Uh, the short answer is because of a woman. Um, and the slightly longer answer is my wife's family, uh, who were living in California when I met Chrissy in California. Um, once we got married and we had moved from California actually to Virginia to because I worked at AOL uh, in the mid-90s, they moved back to Ohio, which is where her father was originally from, uh, to be closer to family. And then when our daughter was born, uh, Chrissy said, you are now working from home as a freelance person. You can write from anywhere. I want to be closer to family uh, so that you know we have help raising our daughter. So I want to move to Ohio. And I was like, absolutely not. Because of course, I grew up in Southern California in, in the LA area. And I was living in suburban DC and I was like, why would, why would anybody want to move to Ohio? And so the first two years of our daughter's life, Chrissy and Athena would go to Ohio about once a month, you know, and I, that's what I called paying the Ohio tax. So I wouldn't have to live there. Um, but eventually Chrissy was like, no, we need to actually move. And then I thought I would be super clever. And I said, okay, we can move, but I want five acres of land. And I didn't want five acres of land. I never leave the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason to ask for five acres of land was I grew up in California and I was living in suburban DC. I knew how much land costs there and I knew I couldn't afford it. So I thought that this would be a, a thing. But it turns out in rural Ohio, you can buy five acres of land, or at least you could in 2001. 
for the cost of, um, you know, pocket change and lint. So she found a place and she calls me up and she's like, I found a place. It is exactly five acres and it is on the deed 5.01 acres. And it's the dimensions of a New York city block. And so I went out and I looked at the place and, you know, it's where we live now. And I was like, all right, you win. Cause I gave, this was what I told you I wanted. And, and now we live here. And so it's been 21 years that we have lived in Ohio, which is the longest I have lived ever in one place at one time. And I actually like it quite a lot. Part of it is because notwithstanding 2020 and 2021, when everybody was in their house, um, I travel so much uh, for book tours and for events and for everything else that I do um, that when I come home, I don't want to see people. And I don't want to be near people. The only people I want to see are my family and pets. And living in rural Ohio on five acres of land does a really good job of uh, keeping me happily introverted. So uh, it turns out uh, moving to Ohio was pretty good. And also, I have to admit that Ohio has been pretty good to me. I mean, aside from the fact that I have written every single novel that I've ever written except for Agent to the Stars in this house in this office that I'm sitting in right now. Um, the other thing is that Ohio actually is real excited about me. They gave me a, uh, a governor's award in the arts in 2016. I was the first science fiction writer ever to win one of those. So uh, when I got the astounding award, it was previously the Campbell award. I got a, uh, a proclamation from the Ohio house. And then when I won the Hugo award, I got a proclamation from the Ohio house and the Ohio Senate. So, you know, all of these sorts of things, uh, I feel like, um, like Ohio appreciates that I'm actually here. So, you know, there are worse places for uh, a science fiction uh, writer to live than where I live. Right, for sure. Like that's, uh, it's been a little bit of my experience as well. I, um, I grew up in Geauga County up in Northeastern Ohio. Sure. And uh, the, the mentor Barnes and Noble about 20 minutes from where I grew up to this day, they still put an end cap up whenever they have an extra like space. And they just like, right. it's the only bookstore in the world that like treats me like I'm an actual celebrity, which is awesome. Right. right, right. Yeah. No, it's like hey, local kid makes good. Good for him. I, I mean, and it is kind of fun. I think it also is weird for like, I live in a town of 1800 people. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it's kind of fun for them to uh have me like live here because like i will go into the the local gas station to get my you know uh gas station uh, hot chocolate or something like that and the people uh there will be like so are you hanging out with tom hanks again and i'm just like you know as a matter of fact <laughs> blah 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 uh and stuff like that so that the fact that i am doing stuff in uh like you know hollywood and that they can actually like go to Netflix and see something that I've done there or that, you know, I've met famous people, you know, or, or something like that just, you know, thrills them. It's like the, the second order, you know, of, uh, you know, contact. And I don't want to say that they actually like, you know, that they're sort of unsophisticated rubes and I just bring zip and zing to their lives because that's not the case. They're like anybody else. Uh, but simply the fact that here's, here's someone who is doing this stuff, and he lives, you know, right outside of town. 
right? Yeah, uh, it's kind of kind of incongruous, and I think that they, I think they enjoy the incongruity of it as much as I do. Well, I, people f- that are from the Midwest, I feel like they kind of know their reputation. They know that 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 they have this. They live in this relatively quiet area, and everybody that's famous and everybody that's big always goes to the coast. Sure. And so it is. It's a novel. It's fun and it's novel, but I don't think in like a like a condescending way at all. Right. Exactly. And the thing about it is also, um, I mean, part of it is if you are going to make a go at acting, you know, for example, you have to go to L.A. or you have to go to New York. These are the places that you go because that's where they are doing stuff. Now, sometimes they will, you know, Georgia has film stuff. Uh, New Mexico has film stuff. Vancouver has film stuff, but it all starts in New York and LA and you go where you go, where the action is. And it's, we're not immune to it either. I mean, uh, pre pandemic, there was the thing where my manager out in LA is like, you got to move to LA. You could do so much more. If you were in LA, I could get you in writer's rooms and stuff. And I made the point to him is like, look, dude, I could fly to LA stay in a hotel for three or four days, fly back home and repeat 48 weeks out of the year. And it would still be cheaper than a mortgage in Los Angeles. And he's like, Oh, how much did you pay for that place that you live? And I told him, he's like, Hey, you won't find anything here that, you know, and I was like, yes, I know. (laughs) And of course now it doesn't, it doesn't matter at all. I mean, um, it's like the vast majority of the meetings that I've done for the last two years have been zoom meetings anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, so as long as you, as long as you have an internet connection, um, then you can do what you do and, and everybody's gotten used to that now. So, um, there may, you know, there may come a time, you know, somewhere in the future when I am vastly, you know, uh, better off than I am right now, where I can just have a second home in LA somewhere. And I'll tell you a funny story, which is that at one point, Chrissy came out with me to LA and I was meeting my manager and I said, he's going to try to convince you to, you know, move me out to LA. And she says, don't worry, I've got this. And so uh, we go and have a meeting to, with him and he's explaining all the things that were going on. He's, and then he turns to Chrissy, he's like, but you know, if he was here that we could possibly do more things. And then, you know, so maybe you should talk to him about moving out. And I, and she goes, because uh, his name's Joel. She's like, Joel, baby, make us the millions. Maybe we'll move. And he looks at her and he stares at her. You want, I should go sell the books on the street corner, you know? And I was like, this is the best moment of my, of my life uh, in terms of just having a Hollywood moment. You know, it's like you know, talking with my manager and my wife about moving to Los Angeles. And it's hilarious because of course also I've told you know, Joel, that I, I tell the story and I do it in his voice. He's like, well, make the voice that sounds like me. And I do the voice. He says, I don't sound like that at all. And he does. He totally does. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I, uh, whatever like kind of um, Midwest glitz I might've had at all uh, disappeared when I, we moved to Utah six years ago. And now I'm five minutes up the street from Brandon Sanderson. Um, nobody cares. Yeah. Yeah. No, the comparison is just not, not a, a a favorable one in in on your side, which must you know, which must gall you as a as a best selling uh, fantasy author. You will always you'll always be the Herman Hermits to his Beatles. Hey, you know what? Uh, in the middle of the pandemic, I got to go see Dune in Brandon's private theater, so I'm okay with it. <laughs> Just yeah, you know, that that erased all the, the that erased any professional jealousy. It's like, oh, this is right down the street. Perfect. Well, no, it's really funny. That uh, I mean, for for two things. I mean, one. Uh, so Brandon and I were both in the 
uh, astounding slash Campbell class, the same class, right? And I won that year. And and uh, people were like, now you're Brandon's nemesis. And I'm like, you know, I think Brandon's doing just fine. I, I think if we're if we're talking about who who won the uh, nemesis game there in particular, uh, I think he, he's done fine. But the other thing is, is that honestly, I find it difficult to be envious of Brandon. I mean, generally, I find it env- hard to be envious of anybody, but uh, Brandon in particular, because one, he's literally the planet's nicest guy, right? You know, he's there, you know, maybe he harbors an inner core of viciousness or something like that, but I've known him for, you know, 15, 16 years and I haven't seen it yet, you know? Um, And the other thing is like, he's literally one of the hardest working people I know. And I cannot, I cannot even imagine like, so like, you know, the thing with the, the Kickstarter that eventually, got up to $41 million. And uh, I think everybody was looking at the $41 million, right? I was looking at the, what, it was 190,000 orders he has to fulfill now. And so people, and and I'm just like, ah, that's so much work. And of course he has all the people that he has at uh, Dragonsteel uh, to to deal with it. Um, And he's going to do a fine job and they're going to do a fine job and it's all going to work the way it's supposed to work. But I just... I can't imagine doing all of that, right? And people are like, are you, you know, it's like, you're just jealous of Brandon. Brandon's done this thing on his own. And it's like, no, no, Brandon has done a thing that there's no chance on earth that I would ever want to do. And I'm super happy for him that he's done it and he's going to rock it. But there's a reason why, you know, what I want to do is I want to turn in my manuscript, be like, your problem to tour, let them do everything. And then the next thing I have to do is show up and schmooze, right? At a, at an event, right. Or, right. These are, these are the two things that I'm good at. These are the two things I want to do. Um, so um, all the other stuff, I am more than happy to let other people who are far more competent than I am to do. And also I don't have to pay them. Tor has to pay them. Tor's got a whole setup <laughs> to pay the people who are making my stuff look and and feel better when it uh, when it comes out. So um, yeah, no. As far as it goes, Brandon is he is kind of he is literally his own cottage industry, and it's amazing. And I'm super happy for him that his uh, success has worked out the way it, it has. And there's absolutely no way that I would ever want to do what he does because oi. So much work. Right. Well, he has to manage managers for right. the teams of people. Right. Yeah. Like that's just wild. Yeah. No, he is, uh, he's got to do all that he's got to do. And the thing is, is that um, one of the things that's great about getting older for me, right, is the the understanding of the limits of my own competence, right? Um, and part of that is um, that I am not the, you know, I was president of CIFWA, right? Mm-hmm. Um and I was very good at very specific aspects of the task, right? I was good at consensus building on the board. I was good at like sort of overarching, well, we, these are the things we should do. Do, But I was not the detail-oriented person, right? And when I ran and Mary Robinette Cole was my vice president who later became president, um, I basically ran with her on the understanding that like she would handle the fiddly details because if it was left to me, everything would collapse. And, you know, I was happy to be the genial figurehead of that particular power duo. 
Um, and it's the same sort of thing. It's like um, my wife and I are, you know, talking about, do we want to expand what we are doing in terms of like business? And the understanding is, is that if we do that, then she is going to be the CEO and I will be the chairman because she will make sure that things actually get done. Right. And I will be the guy who, you know, sends the thank you notes. And that is the, the equitable uh, balance of, uh, you know, responsibilities in that particular case. So any, you know, any author, or honestly, anyone who can do uh, really intense detail oriented management has my admiration and respect, and I'm glad they're doing it and not me. <laughs> I I think that weirdly going back to like professional jealousy, I think is a weird thing because a lot of the times people don't understand that the professional jealousy doesn't, especially when you know the person personally, yeah, it doesn't necessarily come from jealousy of their success. It comes from jealousy of the background of success. Like the jealousy, like I'm jealous of Brandon's work ethic. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I'm jealous of those those things that made him very successful rather than the success itself. Right. Well, success is, I don't want to say success is easy, but success is the, su- success is the obvious thing, right? It's like you see someone who has hit the bestseller list and you see someone who has made money or you see someone who has won an award and it's easiest, it's easy to be envious of that. But what gets what gets unacknowledged is the path, right? You know, the people, you know, having to put in all the work that, that the people who are on those lists or won those awards have done, or that, you know, or the every day of showing up and doing the work, right? One of my favorite success stories right now um, is uh, Martha Wells, right? Martha Wells, who has literally won every award that you could possibly win in the last few years with the with the Murderbot series and and is a bestseller and it's richly deserved and she is one of the nicest human beings that you will ever meet right and people see you know that Murderbot has won all the awards right and that it's hit the bestseller list and it's easy to be envious about that but what i envy out of all the things that Martha has done is the fact that she never ever gave up right because she was 30 years into a career before Murderbot hit and blew up the career. I mean, she was plugging away with lots of books, lots of stories, lots of work. And she was just plugging along like people do. Like, you know, there are lots of writers who write really good stuff. And if for some reason or another, it just doesn't break their way. But they continue doing it because every time you get up to bat is another chance for for a hit. Um the fact that Martha's signature success, the thing that she will be remembered for in the field of science fiction, happened 30 years into her career is immensely heartening. Um, but it is also, you know, the thing of I can't say for my own self that I would have had the same, uh, you know, the same ethic that she had of, you know, just keep trying, just keep doing this. I mean, I am one of those people who's like, well, now this isn't working. Now I'll just go do something else. Right. So if old men's war had flopped and they were like, you know, you have to do something else and that didn't do well or whatever, it's, it's not a, it's not a guarantee that I would have done what I did and just kept going. Right. It's entirely possible that I would have just been like, eh, I'll go back into marketing because that's where, you know, I'm making money. Um, so 
you're right. I, the, the thing to, the thing that, uh, I think it's easy to envy success. It's harder to envy ethic, you know, the work ethic or the, the stick-to-itiveness or the style of all those things, you know, all the other things that build towards success so that when it happens, that success seems inevitable, but absolutely doesn't. Yeah. Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. I was thinking about your big deal with Tor because that hit yeah. the industry not very far into my own career. I think I'd only been out for two years in my first book. Right. And when I when I kind of read about that, I remember it being the thing everyone talked about for several weeks. Yeah. Uh, and I I remember reading about it, and for me as kind of a young writer, it felt it felt like some kind of a paradigm shift, mm -hmm. but I didn't know what it was. Sure. And I I was I was reflecting this morning about how I'm getting I got the same feeling when Brandon's Kickstarter just just was pasted everywhere. Sure. It feels like some sort of paradigm shift. But then I look back on kind of your contract and the big thing that happened with that. And, and I, I'm not sure, did that change the industry at all? Like this, a massive 10 book contract or 13 book, right? 13 books. Yeah. Yeah. 13 book contract. It's funny to look at these like individual things that kind of hit and right. everyone talks about, oh, this is going to change everything. Right. But then I wonder, does it? Like it changes a lot of things for you. Sure. Well, no, here's the thing is both in my case, because a 13 book contract is a ridiculously long contract. And the fact that it was also the money that was involved with it was also not insignificant. And it was, it was useful in the sense that um, it did two things. One, it was a vote of confidence in the genre, right? You know, in the sense of science fiction is going to be around long enough as a literary thing. You know, we believe enough in its future that we're going to sign this guy to this ridiculously long contract. And not only are we going to like have all of his books, but his books are just going to be part of the mix, right? Like it was a statement of intent. This was also right around the same time that uh, Tor was also uh, changing up its lineup of editors and doing all that sort of stuff. So it was a sort of part of Tor's larger thing of we are making these plays uh, and we are going to be important. Now, one of the things that absolutely has happened since 2015 um, to, to now, um, and it's uh, not due to me specifically, um, but there, there has been the shift of like, there is more science fiction and fantasy on the New York Times bestseller list now, the more regularly hits than uh, did before. I mean, previously you would get an occasional hit of original work and you would get a lot of uh, tie-in stuff um, and all of that, you know, all of that is great. But now it's hardly a week goes by where there's not a 
science fiction book or a fantasy book that's on the New York Times list. So the whole, you know, so the whole thing of um, it being a statement of intent that science fiction is coming of age, that was certainly part of the messaging of the deal. But that was only one thing, right? What had, what had really happened was not about me, which was about, that was just basically advertising. But what had happened was who was acquiring science fiction and fantasy? What the goal was for science and fiction, fiction and fantasy uh, had changed. Um, so like, for example, why does, why does science and fiction and fantasy have so much more uh, diversity now? right? In terms of what is acquired is what is sold, what hits the lists, what gets nominated for awards and so on and so forth. It's certainly not because a straight white dude got a 13 book deal. Uh, what had happened was um, the, the people who were acquiring, the people who were in science fiction and fantasy, the, the assistant and associate and now senior editors and all that sort of stuff started being much more diverse, right? Uh, they were coming out of, they're not, they weren't coming just out of the regular, uh, what had been the standard path of coming into science fiction. A lot of them had come in uh, from reading YA. Some of them had come in from uh, reading and appreciating fan fiction. Some of them had come in uh, from, you know, uh, different backgrounds of uh, being people of color, being LGBTQ. And all of that was when they started acquiring they started acquiring a vastly larger uh, palette of stuff. And all of that stuff was being coupled with a structural change in, uh, you know, from Tor, certainly, uh, and then, but also from Orbit, and I think from some of the other imprints of, no, we can, we don't just have to serve the niche. We can expand who is reading this and, you know, build from there. And I think in many ways they took the YA model because YA blew up in the first uh, decade and a half of, uh, of the new century. And those lessons were, were learned and carried over into, into genre. Um, so what I was, was in some ways a, um, just part of a wave that was happening um, that this was a bright and shiny thing that people could look at and be, what does it mean? But meanwhile, the things that had really changed, the structural issues that had changed um, were really, uh, were really the things that had that that were important. I think that Brandon's is the same sort of thing. It does make the statement that science fiction and fantasy, uh, to some extent, is uh, portable in a way and non-dependent on certain ways that business had always been done. Um, in a way that it, uh, you know, it's that happens in a new way. Not everybody is going to do what Brandon does, but certainly a lot of people who have uh, have made either decent careers or the ability to augment and complement their uh, regular, uh, you know, uh, traditional publishing careers uh, with stuff that they've done through Patreon, through uh, Kickstarter, through any number of things. And so I think what happens with what I did and what uh, Brandon has done, to the extent that they are uh, anything at all, they are crystallizations of a moment, but all of, but the, all the work of those moments has already been done, right? You know, Brandon is not the only person that's done a Patreon or done a Kickstarter or has successfully um, done uh, independent uh, publishing. He was just, he was the guy who super saturated the, you know, the solution and this thing happened. 
2015, that was the thing that I that I did, where it was like, holy holy crap, science fiction fantasy is not playing. They really are, you know, planning are are planning to be in the big leagues. Here's their franchise player. Um, that same sort of thing. But it's also important to know that you know Brandon and I um, aren't necessarily the most uh, most influential and significant people in the field. I mean, as much as we are very, very successful and we do our thing, you know, it's people like, for example, Nora, um, who has fundamentally shifted, you know, the conversation of what science fiction is and can be uh, in in the field. Uh, this year's one of the one of the uh, best novels, uh, and that I'm really think is, in many ways, sort of paradigm shifting, um, possibly one can't tell, but one can always think about it, uh, is something like Light from Uncommon Stars by uh, by Rika Aoki, where it is, you know, so vastly different than where, where science fiction was even five years ago or 10 years ago, um, that uh, it's the thing that people are going to be looking at and be like, yeah, no, this is the important thing. I mean, don't get me wrong, Kaiju Preservation Society, great book, doing real well. And it does what it does really, really, really well. I am very happy to say that I'm very good at what I do, but I'm very good at what I do. Uh, Brandon is very good at what he, what he does, but a lot of the action of science fiction and fantasy, um, the things that when people will be doing their masters and doctors, uh, do, you know, doctoral thesis is down the line, um, aren't necessarily going to be about us. We are the, we are the, the, the Nickelback and Imagine Dragons of, you know, of our time. <laughs> and meanwhile, Nora and, and Rika are the ones that are going to spawn a thousand new writers. And that's, and that's fantastic too. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be, I mean, I'm sure that people have done dissertations on this kind of thing going back in, you know, modern publishing of, you know, what, what is it that sells the most versus what is it that hangs in the public consciousness for the next 50 or 100 years? Sure. Right. And the thing is, is off, so often you can't tell, right? You know, uh, William Goldman said of Hollywood, but it's applicable to any creative thing, that literally nobody knows anything, right? Um, and you can try to time the market and you can try to, you, you can try to write a, a hit book or whatever you want to do. But the simple fact of the matter is, Sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. I mean, I, Old Man's War was acquired in 2000, late 2002. Originally, the plan was to put it out in 2003 and then 2004 and eventually came out in 2005. Would it have been a hit in 2003 or 2004? Nobody knows, you know. Um, but the moment it came out was the right moment for it. And then that ride for me began. And it's not that, that uh, Old Man's War was necessarily better than any other book that came out that year. It just happened to fall right when people are like, oh, I wish there was a Heinlein book, but he's not here. And I'd be like, oh, you like a Heinlein book? Here's Starship Troopers with old people. And they were like, arr, 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 and they ate it up, you know, and that was the moment. Right. Um, and so but is that is that going to be the book that's going to be remembered out of 2005? Who knows? Who can say? I mean. Um, you know, the interdependency series did very well. Um, and, uh, the collapsing empire, uh, came in second to the, uh, last, uh, book of, of, uh, the broken earth series. Uh, and that was, I think the appropriate, uh, ranking, right? I love collapsing empire. It's a very good book, but if I had won that year, 
uh, that would have been my that would have been my Adele beating Beyonce's Lemonade uh, moment, and I would have been like, <laughs> "You had a chance here." Uh, fortunately, that that was the thing. But yeah, no the 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 separation of what is commercially successful and what sticks around, right? The you know the uh, Velvet Underground thing of you know only five people five thousand people bought. Uh, Velvet Underground and Nico when it originally came out, but all 5,000 of them started a band sort of thing. Um, you know, that's always the way that it's been. There's always been the what's been successful commercially uh, and what's been successful culturally, you know, and it may turn out, you know, a hundred years from now that in fact, you know, I, people like Scalzi, he was the giant of his day, but I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case. I think I'm going to be there too, Right. And I and I think that there will always be the people who are like, oh, he was part of the scene. Um, but uh, I'm OK just being part of the scene because have you seen the scene? Our scene is amazing. We have so many good writers and we have so much good stuff that is out there right now that just to be able to say, yeah, this is the peer group that like you and I and Brandon and whoever else is doing this stuff gets to be part of. It's like, holy shit, you know. How can you, you know, how can you not love that? I think it's very much like, you know, being part of uh, pop music in the 1960s. It's like on the left, you have the Rolling Stones. Over here, you have the Beach Boys. And they're having a creative tiff with the Beatles, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And you get to participate in that, you know, you get to be on stage with that sort of stuff. How great is that? I, I'm still at the point of my career where I, I just, when I go to a convention and and end up talking to like to, to colleagues who are, I call them colleagues now, but like, I'm still amazed at the people I end up at dinner with or at the bar with, like, right. yeah. like looking at them, like, like I, I, my wife and I went to London a couple of years ago and we, uh, and I ended up in Bath and I tweeted Joe Abercrombie and I said, Hey, do you want to get dinner? And he walked down the hill and had dinner with me. Right. And and my inner, you know, 20 year old just melted. Like it was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> like that kind of thing was so awesome. Yeah. No, this is the this is the thing that that uh, I think needs to be accentuated is like you never stop being a fan. Right. You know, um, and even when. Uh, you can sit there and, you know, sort of casually think of, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I know him. He's a peer. And then part of your brain is like, ah, oh, you're so awesome. You're still awesome. Um, and yeah, no, I have that. I have that moment happen uh, all the time where I'm just like, like, I will be like the the thing that I used to do when I was civil president is that uh, at every nebula I would have I would pay for. Robert Silverberg scotch and he and I would sit there and we would just have a discussion about stuff and it was you know shop talk you know and all that sort of stuff and then eventually he would leave and I'd be like oh I just bought Robert Silverberg scotch <laughs> you know uh, and and how could you not and how could you not love that you know um, now the cool thing is is that someone's going to do that to you where they're like oh my god Brian McClellan don't lose your shit you got to keep it together now oh I, I had a moment um, before, I think this was before I had my contract. So I was still, ooh, I, I couldn't have been more than 21, 22. Yeah. And I was still incredibly shy. I had met practically no one in the industry. Yeah. And I went to a convention and I, uh, I got into an elevator with you. Ha! And I, I stared at you. I had literally just finished Old Man's War. Uh -huh. And I stared at you. 
And we like, like, I didn't even realize I was doing it until we got down to almost the first floor. And you kind of gave me a side glance and you went, hi. And I just went, hi. <laughs> and like, like hurried off of the elevator. I have no memory of this, but I do not doubt that it might have happened. I'm so glad you don't. No, but, uh, you know, but it's absolutely, a, you know, it's absolutely a thing. And it is one of those things that, and, you know, and now, I mean, I don't think you have that same problem. You can come up to me and not be like, you know. Oh, that's gauzy. Um, which, by the way, I still think is a, a, a hilarious. Where people are like, "Oh my God, do you know who you are?" I was like, "Yes, I have my under, I have my name in my underwear." You know, uh, all that sort of thing. But because I, you know, you live with yourself all the time. You know, it's like it, it's not a big deal. But uh, no, or but yeah, you. Everybody has that, particularly in science fiction and fantasy, where thanks to smaller conventions and, you know, just the design of the community um, that, you know, the, the pros and the fans don't, aren't separated. They exist on a spectrum and they all use the same elevators. You know, one of the things that I'm not, that I'm sad about is that, and particularly in COVID times is that a lot of the smaller conventions are now kind of on shaky ground um, simply because you know, two years of not being able to do your, to do your thing punches a hole in, you know, your, um, organizational structure, your ability to, you know, carry funds over from one year to another. Uh, and so a lot of smaller conventions are kind of on the precipice. And that means that that sort of conviviality, that ability to mesh on that level, um, is some of it's going to, some of it's going to be lost. And while there are now larger media cons, you know, uh, and they are great for what they are. Um, but the separation between fan and pro there is so much more pronounced than it is, um, at, you know, like a, a confusion or a lost con or, you know, or even a world con. Right. Uh, and I think that we have to be particularly careful these days in the next three or four years about if we don't actually like uh, pay attention to the smaller cons and participate in the smaller cons and do all that sort of stuff. A certain la certain character that uh, the the science fiction community has uh, might might be lost, and we may just simply end up with a professional, you know, sort of tier that again is very much like the the media cons, where it's like you you see them uh, at their booth and you see them at their table. Uh, and you see them on a panel, and that's the only only time you see them. And I don't, and I, I don't think that that benefits our community. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. With the smaller cons, there's kind of a difficult balance there because a lot of the smaller cons they uh, they don't have the budget to to even pay for any of the uh, flight or hotel for the professionals they invite. Sure. And so a lot of them will kind of just spam a bunch of writers and say, hey, do you want to come to my con? But I can't really offer anything. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's tough when when people in our industry who who we see as very successful, a lot of them, they aren't necessarily millionaires. They're not oh, sure. necessarily hundred thousandaires. They're the, right. they, they've got budgets too. And, and so there's a balance for them as well. Oh, absolutely. And this is a, you know, and this is a, and again, again, we, we we're just coming out of COVID times where things have been, you know, precarious for, for a lot of folks. The, the science fiction community for a very long time has always, has been a volunteer sort of we're all in this together let's put on a play um sort of thing um and it is absolutely true that there are economic realities of um being able to show up and do events being able to show up and make make the time for them um and i do think for example um you know if you're a guest of honor then you get everything paid for if you don't then you show up or you don't and you know you're supposed to be like well this is something that i can write off on my accounts. And then there's also the thing of, you know, is there a difference between a small convention where you can be like, it literally is 400 people all doing their thing. Um, and like a book festival that is sponsored by, you know, these gold tier, you know, places and don't they have the money to actually, you know, put us up in a hotel room or, or something like that. It's very, you know, it is an issue of where does the money go and to whom does it go? And, is there is there a class structure? Like I almost never have I almost never have to pay for anything, right? These days mm-hmm. because I'm usually invited, and if I'm invited, then either they are paying for it or uh, as Tor sends me as part of my publicity thing, right? Um, so it is kind of weird that you know once you get to the upper tier, and this is the thing that's always happened. It's like you don't pay for shit anymore, right? It's like where do you want me to go? Okay, are you? You know, are you know, are you paying for my hotel? Uh, no. Okay. Well, we'll see. You know. Um, whereas when I was starting off, I mean, literally, I just showed up, right, and I mm-hmm. paid for everything and, and and did that sort of thing. So yeah, no, it's a real it's a real issue, and there is a real question of how much does science fiction can science fiction rely on the we are a community, let's all pull together as a team sort of thing, um, or is there a point at which uh, we have to acknowledge, like, look, we are asking writers and illustrators and editors and all this sort of stuff to do actual work, to show up and to be the thing. And uh, and what does that mean for for them? And what does it mean for the convention? And I think for me, one sort of dividing line, honestly, is whether it's a you know whether it's a five hundred one three C or whether it is a for profit thing. And I, you know, if it's a, if if it's a if it's a nonprofit thing where they're basically doing it and they're hoping not to, you know, go bankrupt, you know, they're doing it on a break-even basis or whatever gets done carries forward or something like that, and it is a small convention, um, then that's going to be something that I'm going to support more than if it's a for business uh, entity and they're taking 
the box office gate and they're, you know, basically this is our money now. Right. Um, so maybe for me, that's the dividing line. But then again, I have the, I have the privilege of, of, uh, being able to decide what things seem morally upright to me and what things don't. Right. Yeah. That, that totally makes sense. I, I was kind of curious because you are one of those figures, you know, when I, when I do research for the guests on this podcast, sometimes I really have to dig um, because a lot of otherwise quite successful fantasy science fiction authors, they don't really have a public persona. You don't know much <laughs> about who they are, who their families are, where they're from. You, on the other hand, you have lived an incredibly public life sure. for a very long time. Sure. And I, I was curious if you, in what ways you think that's affected you? Um, I mean, largely it's been to my benefit. Um, for a, for a couple reasons, certainly when I was starting out, like Old Man's War got bought at the very beginning, uh, at the very end of 2002, very beginning of 2003, there was a two year gap, like literally almost exactly two years before it came out. And because I had the blog, right. And because I was very vocal in the way that you can be when you're a straight white dude, um, science fiction and fantasy had two years to get used to me before the book came out. And so basically I had the, I had the advantage of when I hit, it already felt like I had been there forever. Right. You know, uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden makes the joke that I went to my first, uh, you know, uh, convention in like 2005. And by the end of the convention, I had been in fandom since 1963. Right. Cause that's just <laughs> the way that it felt. Um, so for me, that was an advantage. But the other thing is, you know, it is weird, even with a small community like science fiction and fantasy, of uh, being so public for for so long, the parasocial relationships, which are added to by the fact that we have these conventions and stuff like that, everybody does feel like they know me. And I've been very clear about you are seeing a public face, like public skullsy, like, you know, the, on the blog, I will tell you about the, like I used to say, I would tell you about the cute thing that my daughter did. I won't tell you about when I wanted to strangle her, you know, uh, you know, I won't tell you about when Chrissy and I have a disagreement and all of those sorts of things. I, it's it's uh, personable, but not personal. And I've always been very public about, I'm going to keep some things private and if you ask me about them, then I'll be like, those aren't any of your business. And then if you try to press on them, um, they will be uh, get huffy. Um, and it also helped, um, quite frankly, that long before I was in science fiction and fantasy, um, I was I was working in a newspaper as a critic and as a columnist. And so I was always since I was writing professionally, um, I've always had that relationship with micro celebrity. Right. Um, where more people knew me than I knew. And for a particular group of people, I was a notable person. So that when the science fiction stuff came, it was just another, you know, kind of a level up on the thing that I was already doing, which really, uh, really helped. So all of that stuff was beneficial. The flip side of that is obviously you become a target in some ways or another. Um, certainly when we had the unpleasantness of the uh, sad puppies uh, and stuff like that, um, there was the thing of, I was held up by certain elements of that group as the example of everything that was wrong with science fiction today. Uh, and, you know, I had to, I had to spend my, uh, you know, a lot of my time, um, dealing with that. And that did, you know, on, it did take some toll simply because 
on one hand, I'm happy it was me because, you know, to the extent that people were focused on me, it meant they weren't focused on other people who had not had all the time to, you know, learn how to process and deal with this on this sort of crap. So, you know, it was the, the idea is like, you know, it's my job to be a tank, right. And just absorb a lot of, uh, a lot of hits and, you know, and that's fine. Um, but it does, but it does also end up um, taking a toll. You know, it's like when you have so many people performatively angry with you or saying horrible things about you or all that sort of stuff, no matter how thick your hide is, and mine is very, very thick, um, it's still tiring. And at the end of the day, you're like, do, do we really have to do this all, you know, all of the time? And, you know, I'm conflicted about it in some ways. I mean, it's been beneficial, um, but I can't say that my public persona has always been to the benefit of other people, right? So to the extent that people were modeling me as a way to do as a way to do social media or the way to blog or something like that. There are just some people who are not, uh, that it was not a good model for, you know, again, not to harp on it, but, you know, I came into science fiction and fantasy already with an audience already, you know, with a lot of advantages already with all of these things that were going on. Um, I was used to, you know, holding forth, and, you know, doing the back and forth in the comments section and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I had been a, and I had been a critic, uh, and I knew how the sausage was made. So then when I got bad reviews or anything else like that, I was handling it. And some of that might be beneficial, but some of it just came with the package of being me, uh, and all the privileges that I get, you know, by who I am both in society and me as a personality uh, type and so on and so forth. And so when people were using me as an, a way to emulate and they weren't in the same positions that I were, that I was in or had the same sort of learned resiliency to criticism and anger that I had, it probably, I mean, it, it wasn't healthy for them. And, you know, and to some extent I'm responsible for that. Not in the sense of I, me saying, no, everybody should be like me. Um, but in the sense of, that I should have been aware sooner than I was aware that this model was not tenable for other people and that I should have been saying to folks, you know, look, just because this is the way I do it um, is not the way that it always has to be done. Eventually the clue by four hit me over the head and I was like, look, you know, let's all acknowledge that the way that I do things um, is not going to be uh, always positive for everybody. Um, but I mean, for me, the, it's had, it's, it's, it's mostly been blessings, but there have been things that have been downside as well. Have you, do you feel as if you've, um, actively tried to change some of the ways you, your public persona is over the last 10 years? I think what has changed is that my tolerance for, like I, my Chrissy, my wife used to say that she used to worry about me like yelling at people on the internet because she thought it was taking a psychic toll. Uh, and then she realized, she said, but then I realized this is ba basically your equivalent of watching TV. You know, like this is how you entertain yourself. Um, and for the longest time that she was correct about that, it's like getting into a scrap and da -da 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 and all that sort of stuff was, was fun for me. Eventually it stopped being fun. Right. Um, and it became less fun for, for a couple of reasons. One um, is I've been on the internet for 30 years now. So there's really no, 
tactic I haven't seen at this point. So it just so it just gets old. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is that the, the the environment has changed. It's no, I mean, rhetoric has become weaponized in a way that is not about people. It is like literally you have botnets and you have state actors and you have uh, propagandists. And, and in, sort, in some sort of way, the innocent fun of having an argument on Twitter in 2010 is, is gone forever. And so um, if you are still having that dynamic of having an argument on Twitter in 2022 that you were having in 2012, you are actively contributing to a problem that didn't exist as a matter of, you know, of structurally uh, weaponized rhetoric. Um, back when you when you started it, and I'm I'm cognizant of you know what my what my responsibilities are not only to myself as someone who has only so much time on the day, um, but also uh, in terms of modeling what I think is decent behavior online. So yeah, I'm much more mindful. I mean, I don't uh, like for example, I used to never mute or block people because I was like, well, I want to I want to be able to mock this person, you know. Um, but now I, I'm, you know, I block and mute and mostly block at this point with such alacrity because it's like, there's no, there's no point in arguing with you because one, this is a faithless argument. You are just playing debate the gathering and slapping down your cards because this has no meaning to you other than to waste my time. Right. Um, or to waste other people's time. And every moment that I actually spend arguing with someone who is insincere and who is wasting time means that I am modeling, uh, showing the way for someone else to do this as well, to have their time wasted. Um, so I'm much more cognizant of doing that. Um, and the other thing is that um, also, like I said, I'm not as, I usually don't write as long politically on the blog as I used to, um, partly because for me, the the gradations of what is going on have become um, much less interesting. I mean, at this point, so much of our political argument is this or fascism. You know, it's like, you know, the the people who are racist, the people who are sexist, the people who are, you know, homophobes and transphobes and everything else have become emboldened to such a point that they don't, they don't even pretend that they're making good faith arguments anymore. And so... Uh, to sort of talk, to have that discussion of you know, the minutia of their arguments is to, it's like, yes, you set the house on fire, but you used propane when you should have used a flare. You know, um, the house is on fire and there's no point in, in arguing about, you know, what was used uh, to set it, to set it on fire. And so for me, the arguments have not be, are, are not interesting anymore because the, the repercussions of what's happening right now are so stark that the decision tree is a lot more is a lot simpler these days and it's sort of frustrating um that we have gotten to this part of our world because the things that i used to take such innocent fun with in like in social media were weaponized and were used in uh that way um but now i do have to i do have to be mindful of what I do uh, models behavior in a certain way. And what I do also is about, you know, how much time I can devote to that when in fact I do have a life and I do have a job and I do have uh, responsibilities. So yeah, I'm not the same person in 2022 on social media or on my blog that I was 
in 2012 or 2002 or 1998 when I started writing on the blog in the first place. Um, nor should I be. I mean, I'm also 52 years old now. If I was, if I was getting into the same fights as I was getting into when I was, you know, 30, then the problem, then the problem is me. I should actually be able to learn. Do you ever, do you ever have those moments where you just stop and you have a day where you're just like, I don't want to be a good example. I don't want to, you know, be nice on the internet. You know, I want to just, I want to give it everything just for my own mental health to get it out. Oh, sure. I mean, the thing is, is that I don't pretend to be a perfect person, you know, and there are, there are times where I kind of give in or there are times when I think it's necessary. Like sometimes you, sometimes you fight a fight. And you may be right or wrong about whether that fight was worth fighting and time will tell. Um, but sometimes you do it. I mean, there are, there have been times where I've looked at something and decided that, uh, that was something that I needed to wait in on. The thing is, you know, the thing is, is that with so many things, I'm like, does this need me in it right at this point? Because not only is it, it's like, and now this is going to go everywhere, but I also have to now handle the fallout of it and, you know, all the, everything else. So it's the time commitment of, of the thing. But also the thing is, is that I really have learned that the things that I am absolutely useful to have a, be a participant in the discussion are, are smaller and smaller as time goes by. Um, and sometimes I'll just talk about stuff because I want to talk about them. And sometimes I'll talk about them like, okay, I'm coming in from a complete point of ignorance. So go ahead and school me because I'm going to say something dumb here, but here it is. Uh, and then people are like, you're right. It's time for you to be schooled. And that's fine because I was like, I admitted going in. Um, but other times I'm like, this is something that I know. This is something where my voice is actually beneficial to have a part in it. And sometimes you do have to just stab someone through the eye, right? Uh, you know, sometimes you are the guy who is the right person to do the stabbing. And when that happens, um, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to do it. The difference between me now and me earlier is the number of times where I'm like, well, here's my knife, here's your eyeball, um, has gotten much, much lower, I suspect. Again, that's, you know, me and my self-valorizing opinion. There will be others out there who will be like, no, you're still the same jerk you've always been. <laughs> um, and to those people, I don't know that I will ever change, but, um, certainly I feel like I'm, uh, picking my battles differently and hopefully better now than I did, you know, previously. I, um, something that kind of fascinates me about, um, like what you kind of mentioned earlier, the, the micro celebrity is that there's a point at which, especially somebody like you, who's quite vocal about social issues and politics and things like that, is that there's a point at which people hate you. Sure. And, and I, I find that fascinating in a horrible way Sure. because I, I, as, I, as a person, don't feel like I have a lot of energy to hate. I like most, if somebody, if I don't like somebody or disagree with them, I, I, ex I forget they exist. Yeah. And I, does, does being the target of that, is that exhausting? Are you able to just kind of get rid of it in your head, filter it out? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that, uh, the, over the time, um, I mean, I've done a couple of things. The one is I really have established, you know, here's the hierarchy of people's whose opinion I really care about. It's like, are you my wife? Are you my child? And in a very specific work-oriented way, are you my editor? And if the answers to all of these questions are no, then I don't honestly care what you think. You know, um, you may have made a point, and if it's a good point, I will consider it, all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, 
you're not someone who on a day-to-day basis, uh, whose opinion I have to really give credence to. So having that immediate sort of hierarchy is uh, beneficial. Now, the flip side of that is that sometimes I, there is somebody who's like, no, you actually did screw up and you should, this is how, and there, it will sometimes take me longer to acknowledge it than, uh, it should, but you know, these are the, these are the ways of the white man. So, you know, (laughs) that's the way kind of that goes. But, but the other thing about it is also, you know, you consider the source. It's like the, you know, the people who went out of their way to hate me over the last decade are people who I generally don't respect anyway. It's not like I lost any sleep over the fact that, for example, a virulent, racist, sexist, homophobe decided to make me a project, right? You know, it's like, well, you're a terrible person. So, you know, I'm not going to feel bad that you dislike me. And, and also, you know, on a day-to-day basis, uh, it doesn't really have an effect. You know, it's like, clearly my career has never, has not really ever suffered a ding because of the haters, right? But the, you know, but the other thing about it is, again, the question is, who benefits? Who benefits from uh, hating me and who benefits from me being affected by being hated? A lot of the people who hate me basically hated me because I was a convenient target for the thing that they wanted to do. And if it wasn't me, it would have been somebody else. And so it might as well have been me because, you know, I have spent literally 30 years building up all these sorts of psychic defenses against, you know, uh, people punching at me. And also I'm kind of in, in our little community at the top of the heap. So it's always a punch up and that carries less gravity, you know, less momentum, uh, than, uh, if they're, if they're punching down. So, uh, to some extent, if it's going to be someone, it might as well be me because it keeps, you know, other people from having to deal with it as much. But the other thing is, you know, Sometimes legitimately people have a problem with me. It's not just performative. It's not just I'm trying to rile up these other, you know, acolytes who are terrible people like me. Um, Sometimes somebody legitimately has an issue with something that I've done. And that's a thing that you have to acknowledge and that you kind of have to live with. There are uh, people in the community who I know have like blocked me or muted me or, you know, um, because something that I did or something that I said um, that may have been thoughtless or may have been a thing where I had, you know, uh, unintentionally or intentionally bigfooted them. Um, and that's part of the repercussion of it. No one is, is liked, uh, uniformly. And in some cases I have to acknowledge my actions have not been good. Right. And when those things have happened, and sometimes I figured that out far after the fact, you know, it's like, oh, that thing that I did that I thought I was being clever, I was actually being an asshole about, right? So to some extent, like 80% of the time, the people who hate me, I'm like, whatever, dude, you know, have fun hating me. I'm not going to wish you ill. I will never do anything to interfere your, with your career or anything else. On the other hand, if you fall on your face, I will giggle silently off, you know, off the internet and, you know, uh, at maybe at worst do a very oblique subtweet that 17 different people will think is about them. Um, but 20% of the time I was the, I was the asshole, right? That was, and that's on me. Um, and one of the things that has been a journey for me is recognizing when in fact I have done people wrong, right? Um, either through carelessness or through maliciousness. And is that something that, 
one, I can learn from so I don't do it to the next person. Two, is it something that I can make amends for either directly or indirectly? Um, and three, is it something that um, I can incorporate into myself in a non-destructive way so that I can model better behavior going forth, not just for myself. You know, I often say I cosplay as the better version of me, you know, and hopefully it will take. Um, but also to the extent that, again, I'm, I'm a big mouth and a big fish in a small pond, that I can model better behavior. Um, so, yeah, no, it's something that, um, you know, uh, that I do think about, you know, uh, sometimes I'm hated and sometimes it's deserved. Um, and when it's, when, when it's deserved, it's the, the thing of, well, let's find out how to do better so that I don't get more people justifiably disliking me. Well, and we've, we've talked a little bit about kind of that, that front facing thing that because you, you, you are often kind of a face of something. <laughs> I, I remember a whole thing going around. I was a few years back that you were like DJing on a cruise and like there's, there's like these things that you're often the face of, yep. but you've also been involved in backend stuff like, like being president of SIFWA. Right. And I'm kind of curious how doing some of the, I don't know, maybe like the, 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 the pencil pushing of the bureaucracy of science fiction and fantasy, uh, how has that kind of affected the way that you feel about our little industry? I mean, the nice thing about doing the, like when I was president of SIFWA, like I said, to the extent that, you know, I was, I was not the detail oriented man. I was the, I was the face of the organization and I did certain specific executive level function uh, stuff. It was beneficial because you learned about, I mean, I've always been, I had been particularly in my twenties and thirties, the sort of thing of, well, I'm doing my own thing, right? It doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, it's great if, Things are doing well for other people and so on and so forth. But um, to the extent of I didn't necessarily trust unions or guilds or something like that to be uh, actually uh, beneficial or to do or to do things right uh, for the people that they were supposed to work for. It's not that I was uh, anti-union or anything like that. I don't think I've ever crossed intentionally crossed a picket line. And the one time I recognized that I crossed the picket line, I immediately made a donation to the people who were picketing because I was like, well, that was a screw up. But that was not uh, the question of utility, right? And having done, and then having decided that I was going to do my time in the, in the trenches, both um, as president, but even before president doing, you know, uh, work committee work at, at CIFWA, uh, made me recognize that in fact, there was a place and role for, these organizations and what they do because, and again, this is going to sound arrogant as hell. Let's let me establish that before I say what I'm about to say, because this is arrogant. There's never been a time both either in my pre science fiction career or the post or in the science fiction career where I wasn't, you know, either a rising star or at the top of my field. Right. Um, so I always had a certain special status one way or the other, and I never had difficulty doing the things that I wanted to do. Right. And that's great for me, but like so many people who are in a privileged position uh, for whatever reason that they are, I was, I could be blind to the fact that my situation was not the situation of most people. And when you do service, right whether it's with CIFWA or whether it's with another organization, you then begin to understand 
that the that the people are her privilege, the people who are so often the face of an institution or a, a community or all that sort of stuff aren't necessarily uh, the people who are in the rank and file and who really can benefit from having uh, an advocacy organization. And like I said, it was a slow turn for me from going from, well, you know, why, why can't everybody sort of do the thing that I do? It's like, oh, now I see why everybody can't do the thing that I do. And I can either be like, well, sucks to be you, or I can work to, to make the, the, the field slightly better. And when I was president of the CIFL, we were able to do things that made things slightly better. There was a random house, I think it was, had a digital only imprint um, that was basically going to try to to attach the Hollywood model of accounting to uh, publishing. Uh, and we immediately stepped on that as hard as we could. And, I, and Random House, um, and I believe it was Random House. I would be really embarrassed if it's not because it's been 10 years ago. But Random House was like shocked that we were like, no, this is, you are running a vanity press and you are screwing authors and we will absolutely delist all of Random House if you don't fix this right now. Um, and they were just so shocked that they were like, okay, let's, we're going to go ahead and, and change these things. Um, and if we hadn't have done that, or if other organizations in right in the field of writing hadn't done similar things, you know, uh, when other publishers tried to do their sort of stuff, um, it would have made life harder, not just for in the immediate for the people who accepted those things uh, at the time, but once something becomes established in publishing, um, then it just, you know, it's like it the thing. If you do it once, it's a tradition. If you do it twice, it's a hollowed tradition. Um, and what they say about fandom, but it's also the same in publishing. If you get away with it once, you'll continue to get away with it. And it's much harder to reel it in back then. Um, so we did that. We did some other things. Um, and I think during my tenure at CIFLA uh, and some of the other things that I've done, uh, we actually made things better. Um, and that idea of service, um, of doing the things and using your position uh, that you might have to try to make things better uh, is something that I carry, that I've tried to carry on since then. I mean, once I left CIFWA, um, one of the things that I said is literally the day after I stopped being president of CIFWA and therefore um, I, you know, uh, wasn't putting CIFWA on the spot for my own actions uh, is when I did the thing of, because I had heard for years and years and years from friends who were women who were LGBT uh, folks who are, um, you know, in minority groups, um, basically that, you know, uh, uh, the level of harassment and, uh, you know, issues that they've had with uh, conventions and that they were, you know, and that they had complained and they had made the thing, you know, and at best, you know, at worst they were ignored and at best um, the, the convention would go, oh, well, we'll put a committee on it. And the committee didn't, would never do anything because nobody had a frame of reference for how to talk about that sort of stuff. Um, and so I put up the thing and it's like, you know, going forward, I'm not going to, you know, go to any convention that does not have a robust sexual harassment policy. I'm not going to do, you know, uh, that will not, you know, that ha- doesn't have a way that you can be addressed uh, that's institutionalized and that I will hear from the folks that in fact they are going to honor their harassment policy. And when that happened um, and then people like, can I sign on to this? And we had a thousand people like literally in the two months after after that, you know, all of a sudden, all these conventions had harassment policies. And this was immensely frustrating to so many of the women, LGBT, 
LGBTQ folks and minorities who had been saying for years and years and years and years and years um, that this was a problem. And then all of a sudden the white dude shows up and says it and they, everybody falls over themselves to do it. Um, but that was my understanding. I made it very clear that when I was doing this, that I was not doing it to be the uh, guy who changed things. I was doing it because because the reality of the of the world that we lived in at the time was with somebody like me said this thing, then they would pay attention to it and they didn't pay attention to it before. And that fucking sucks, but okay, right? But that was a thing that literally it was not an issue that was ever going to be an issue for me. I was not being harassed. I was not being uh, discounted. I was not being minimized in any of these sorts of spheres. But so many people I knew and cared about and who were important to me were. And then there, there were all the bunch of other people I didn't know who were get, having to deal with it too, that I felt that this was a responsible use of my privilege to be of service. And we're, you know, and it still goes on and on and on and on and on and on. You know, um, I don't, like I said, I mean, I don't claim to always do the right thing. And I don't always claim that everything that I do uh, works out well. But I do try with the understanding of the privilege and influence that I have, you know, that I try to not get, make it just about myself, that I do as much as possible raise the boats, right? And make it easier for people to have the same privilege that I have, right? It's not something, it's not pie, right? It's not something that that can only that is a finite amount and that doesn't um, need to be sequestered away only to me. It is something that you are giving me all this sort of stuff. That's great. Why are you not giving it to everybody? There's not that there. I'm not that special. Right. And so that's what my understanding of what I do and can do, which has come through over time by having done the back end work. Oh, that's really, really interesting. I, I think that sometimes you just find yourself in the position to be that person to flick the domino, right? Yeah. You don't, you're not necessarily the big important everything. You just happen to be there to be able to flick that first domino. Right. Or to keep going after all the other dominoes stopped moving, right? Like just to keep that thing moving. Right. And well, and this is, it is very similar to the thing about, you know, sometimes you are in the right place at the right time. Like, you know, the, the one thing I always tell people about, you know, how did you do what you do? And I was like, well, I'm good at what I do. Uh, I put in the work uh, and I'm also incredibly, incredibly lucky. And they're like, well, you know, it can't be luck. I'm like, no, no, it is. Let's acknowledge that there was some luck in there, you know, and not only is luck, you know, being in the right place at the right time, but being able to capitalize on when good things happen to you and all that sort of stuff. To the extent that uh, my luck has allowed me to be in the right place at the right time, uh, and to do things, then the question becomes, you know, you have, you, you have been given this basket and in this basket are all these tools that you can use. Are you going to use them for yourself? Are you going to use them for other people? And part of, like I said, the slow turning of the, you know, the, the, the education of John Scalzi over time um, has been, there is no harm to me in making the world as good as I can for other people as well. I mean, at the end of the day, the worst case scenario for me is that I have had a two decade long career that I have gotten every accolade that's genuinely possible to have gotten. I have made my mark in 
in the uh, in the community and in the genre. And when they write the history of science fiction in the early 21st century, I will absolutely be in it. This is the worst case scenario for me. Um, so why not, given that this is the case of who I am and where I'm going to be in this community and this field, why not use what I have, not just to like scrabble and keep myself in the top position, um, but to broaden the field, to make things better for folks. You know, having been at the top of the mountain, so to speak, the view is great. I wish more people got to see it because, and there's only so much that you can be at the top of the, uh, of the mountain being like, yep, this is the view. Okay, moving along. We'll find out what happens and someone else gets to go and look at it too. And that's the thing, like I said, it's easy for me to say that, you know, in that magnanimous sort of way I just did. Um, it's another way to walk the walk and being a lazy person, sometimes I don't always walk the walk as much as I should, but I, re I try to remind myself every day that that's the thing I should be doing. Uh, that, that, that sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have kept you forever, but I like to wrap up these conversations yeah. by going a little left field. Okay. What's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? The last thing that I ate that blew my I will tell you, um, because it's, it was last night, uh, my daughter made brown butter carrot cake. And she had Ooh. never made brown butter carrot cake before, right? So my daughter has been doing like baking for a long time. And then sometime in the last like few months, she has just leveled up because she'd done been doing so much of it um, that she's finally figured out all the things that she's supposed to do. You know what I mean? It's like, remember when you were writing and then one day it's like, wait a minute, this was good. And I didn't even try to make it good. How did that happen? Right? I think that just happened with my daughter's baking because this brown butter carrot cake which my daughter, who is just standing right here, uh, actually, actually made was unbelievably good. Like I put it in my mouth, and I was like, I was like, oh my god, this is tremendous. So yes, your carrot cake was the the thank most you. amazing thing that I've eaten recently. Uh, this is my daughter saying thank you, by the way. So I am all on board. That sounds amazing. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. I heard you mention it. I just had to come. Okay. Like, oh, brown butter carrot cake. Oh, is, oh, is that that little thing that I did? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, sorry. <laughs> a, a cameo appearance by Athena Scholes. But it was seriously, it was amazing. And there's still some left. So I will be eating that for dinner tonight. <laughs> I've, I've accounted my calories for dinner is the carrot cake. <laughs> that was novelist John Scalzi. Thanks so much to John for taking the time to chat. You can find links to John's website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, Jennifer and Angela Johnson, and Ivor Gulickson for their backing on Patreon. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.